You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, if you were here last week, um, then you know that I kicked off a new series and, uh, and right at the outset, just acknowledged how dark and heavy the holidays can feel for so many of us. And for a long time, I- I've thought that one of the things that really compounds the complicated emotions that many of us carry this time of year is the way that our culture conveys that this should be the happiest time of the year, as if there should be no hardship, that it should be all peace and joy. And so through movies, through music, through marketing, we are just bombarded all day long, and it just happens earlier and earlier. So now it starts in like October, that that this is supposed to be the happiest time of the year, and so we're bombarded with these images and these messages of smiling faces and happy families and perfect gifts, but the problem is that isn't reality for most of us, and so as such, this often is a very complicated time of year. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no joy in it. It just means that we could all use a little light. And so the good news is, when we strip away so many of these, what we might call cultural trappings of Christmas, and we just choose to give our attention to its essential essence, then this season is filled with light. The story that we remember and that we celebrate is filled with joy, it's filled with hope, it's filled with love for every single one of us. But it's also a story that took place, excuse me, in the real world, which means it also is a story that has room for our grief, and it has room for all of our doubts and our unmet longings. And so our goal this year isn't to have like an exclusively sad Christmas, (laughs) but we do want to have an honest one an honest one that holds space for our full experience. And that requires that we embrace the reality that we live between two promises. And here's what I mean by that. Last week, we we looked at Isaiah 9, and we looked at the promise that God made Israel hundreds of years prior regarding the birth of Christ. And so for over 400 years, generation after generation after generation watched and they waited for the promised Messiah to arrive. And then at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that very Messiah, that that promise was fulfilled. But the birth of Jesus did not fulfill the full promise because God also promises that Jesus will restore everything that is broken in this world. And that obviously has not happened yet. So that means we live right here in the middle between these two promises. Jesus has come and that first promise has been fulfilled, but he has not returned and restored all things. And so we wait between these two promises. And here's why that's so hard. You've probably noticed this, but doubt has a way of developing in our hearts when God's promises are delayed. Anytime there's a delay in something that God has promised to us, then oftentimes the longer that I guarantee you the people of Israel, it it probably didn't take 100 years, it didn't take 200 years, it was probably like within a couple of weeks. They're like, when is this coming? 
Isaiah promised that this was going to happen. God spoke through him. That hasn't happened yet. Maybe he got it wrong. Maybe God isn't going to do what we thought. Maybe we've screwed this whole thing up so bad that we've ruined the promise of God in our lives. Doubt has a way of creeping in when the promises of God are delayed. And so one of the most important skills that we have to develop as followers of Jesus is to steward our doubt well. See, contrary to what you may have been told, contrary to what you might even think and feel and believe, doubt is not sinful. It, it doesn't even have to be damaging to our faith. In fact, doubt is very, a very normal part of faith, and when we learn to steward it well, it can actually serve to deepen our relationship with and our trust in Jesus. And one of the ways, this isn't the totality of it, but one of the ways that we steward our doubt in a healthy way is by learning to bring our doubts to the scriptures and to invite God to speak into them through it. And so to that end, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. So Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 1. I want to call this message Trusting God's Promise. And I want to jump right into these first four verses, and then I'll explain a little bit of what's taking place here, all right? So look at your Bibles. or up at the screens. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So we get some real critical context right here about this gospel in general and our story in particular. So first off, this book was written, uh, as it's named, by a man named Luke. Now, if you're not familiar with Luke's background, Luke was not an apostle. Luke actually was not even one of the original 12 disciples. He was a part of the second wave of the early church. And after his conversion, he became a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. And he wrote both this gospel that has his name and the book of Acts. So they're really kind of, a, a, it's a two-volume work about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the birth and the early life of the church. That's what Luke and Acts Holds. Now, Luke was a Gentile convert, meaning he did not grow up Jewish. He was a physician by trade, which also meant he was very well educated. And Luke, in his writing of this account, was commissioned by this man that he names Theophilus. Now, we don't really know hardly anything about Theophilus at all. But what we do know is that he must have been a man of some influence and affluence because he had to somehow be able to pay for Luke to be able to write this account. Now, in verse 4, Luke is pretty straightforward about his purpose in capturing this story. He wanted to help provide Theophilus with confirmation of the things that he had been taught. So Luke worked really, really hard to talk to all of the eyewitnesses that were involved, which we know what, by the writing of Acts was over 500 people had seen Jesus after his resurrection, had somehow been privy to this or part of this story. So he gathers all of these eyewitnesses' accounts because he wanted to provide an orderly and accurate historical account of, again, the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that matters because it reminds us that this is so much more than a sentimental story of something God did in the past. There's all kinds of Christmas movies and Christmas stories that even in our family we love to watch this time of year, and they are large in part funny and or sentimental. 
This story is far more than that. This story is the supreme example of a very specific and significant truth about God. And so here's our big idea this morning. The big idea is this, that God delivers every promise he declares. God delivers every promise he declares. Now, if you are here and you identify as a Christian, which I know is the vast majority of us, then I'm going to assume that you cognitively believe that statement is true. That in your head, you believe, yes, I know, God delivers every promise he declares. But I'm also going to assume that you struggle to believe that functionally. Meaning, if we are honest, which we, again, should always strive to be, most of us have some underlying fear that somehow God's promises are actually dependent on us. Meaning that you and I have to perform in a specific way or we have to possess a certain degree of faith in order for God to fulfill the things he has promised. In fact, there's entire crappy streams of theology that actually teach that. That if you want to be healthy, if you want to be wealthy, if you want to be blessed and highly favored by God, that you have to possess a certain amount of faith. And if there's anything wrong in your life, it really boils down to a problem of your faith. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Not one place. So it sounds good. It apparently sells a lot of books and builds big churches. It's just not true. The Bible never says that. And the result of it is that we worry that somehow we are going to hinder God's promises and his plan in our lives. But the truth is, God's plan is dependent on his provision. It's not on our performance. It's not on our power. It's on his and so no one and nothing can obstruct God's ultimate plan. You can't even. So you might be here, and you might be in this place in your own faith journey where you feel like, I don't even know if I believe anymore. I'm, I'm not sure how to, if I even want to keep going in this, if I even believe that God is with me, that he's good, or that he even exists. Even if that's where you are, do you know that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of, of Philippians, in chapter one, he wrote to the Philippians and he said, I have faith that God is going to see through to completion everything he started in you. So that means even if you're in a season if you're in a scene in your own faith story that you're like, I don't even know if I believe anymore. I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. God's going to see through to completion in you what he started. I don't know when. I don't know how. He's going to get it done. You can't screw that up. You can resist him. You can run from him. But he's going to see through to completions the things that he has started in us because he delivers every promise he declares. And this critical truth shines forth from the very first scene of the Christmas story. God delivers a long-awaited promise, and he accomplishes his eternal plan through two very normal people like you and I. Two people with limitations, with fears, and with doubts. And so let's look together at how these three common obstacles that we all have, that we all possess, that we all come up against, have really no power in the end to hinder God's plan. So the first one is this, our limitations can't hinder God's plan. Our limitations can't hinder God's plan. Look at verse five. <clears throat> it says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, 
living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So right out of the gate, we meet the two main characters that open our story. Zechariah was a Jewish priest married to a woman named Elizabeth, who was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We learn that in verse 36. Now, right here at the beginning, we learned that this couple had a serious limitation that from a human point of view would have seemed to hinder God's plan through them. See, the text is clear that they were elderly. Most scholars estimate that they were at least in their 80s. And at this point, they had been unable to bear children. And I mean, I don't know if you know this, but most people in their 80s think like that, that season has kind of come and gone. That was a limitation for them. Now, all joking aside, we have people in our own church who have and are struggling with fertility issues, and it is a gut-wrenching, profoundly disappointing reality to have to sit with. But in addition to all of that, do you know that infertility came with significant social stigma in the first century, particularly within Jewish culture, because it was commonly perceived that if you were unable to conceive a child, that it was the result of personal sin. So anytime there was so uh, what 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 Elizabeth would have lived with what Zechariah would have lived with as they walked through their community each day was people looking at them going like I don't know what's going on in their life but there's some sin in their camp because they can't have a baby like just imagine living with that imagine the psychological trauma that that would have been to not only have to deal with the very real disappointment of being unable to conceive in the way that you longed and having everyone in your life assuming it's because you did something to make God mad. That was their experience in their life. Yet despite what the people around them would have thought and believed, we know from the text that their barrenness was not due to any sin. Verse 6 says they were both righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. That'd be an incredible thing to have on your tombstone. And so Luke highlights this so that we would see, that Theophilus would understand, that everyone who reads this story would understand God's power in the midst of their situation. See, the lesson is that God longs to use our most severe limitations as a stage from which to display his limitless strength. So in your life, that might be a mental illness of some kind. You might have some sort of physical limitation, something from your past that you have not been able to metabolize or anything else. God wants to use whatever that limitation may be to be the very context within you experience his powerful presence in your life. And the experience of that really boils down to whether or not we can make the scary and thus courageous decision to surrender to him and to allow his strength to shine in us and through us. And the alternative to that choice is the frustrating and losing fight to maintain control over things that we can't control. God will deliver every promise he declares, which means our limitations, no matter how severe, cannot hinder the plan of God in our lives. Now, secondly, we learn that our fears can't hinder God's plan. Our fears can't hinder God's plan. Look at verse 8. It says, when his division, so speaking of Zechariah, was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, 
It happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. So, you need to understand that this was a massive day for Zechariah. And to conceive of this, we really have to understand a little bit more about the Jewish priesthood in the first century. So at this point, the Jewish community had roughly 18,000 priests. And they were divided into 24 divisions, of which Abijah was the eighth division. And each one of those divisions would serve a total of two weeks a year, and it was divided into two one-week sessions. And one of their chief responsibilities when they were serving was to make offerings to God on behalf of the people. And that responsibility was an extreme honor in the life of any priest. As the text says, they were chosen by lot, which one of them got to do it. And a priest could only perform that sacrifice or that offering one time in their lifetime. And many people were never chosen at all. And so here's why those details matter. On the day described here, Zechariah was picked to make this offering. So for him, this would have been like playing in the Super Bowl We're talking like playing at the Grammys or winning an Oscar. This was a big day, arguably maybe the biggest day in his entire life to this point. He would have been excited, he would have been humbled, and he would have been amazed as he headed in to carry out this offering. And if being chosen for this honor was not enough, what he actually experienced was like nothing he could have anticipated. Look at verse 11. It says, an angel of the Lord, again, appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. I I love that detail, because that's one thing that's really unique about Luke's account here, is there's so much detail. He tells you exactly where this angel is, and scholars, that's one of the ways that that they use to uh, substantiate the authenticity of an eyewitness account. There's an immense amount of detail. Oftentimes, if someone's making something up, they do so in a pretty vague manner, But Zechariah is like, oh, no, no, the angel came in. He was standing right to the altar of incense. I can tell you exactly where he was. Look at verse 12. It says, when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never drink wine or beer, which is the saddest part of John's story. He, <laughs> he will be, I was reading that this morning going, poor John. He, was, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a trade-off, okay? So that's pretty awesome. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We, that might need to be cut out of the podcast. <laughs> he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Zechariah walks in. He immediately gets to work, and you have to think, like, he's already nervous due to the sheer rarity of this responsibility, but then on top of that, an angel appears to him. Now, As is often the case, there's no description of what this angel looked like, but I can guarantee you this was not the baby angel that we see in so many of our pictures. And we can be certain of that because the scriptures never describe angels in that manner ever. And so because of Zachariah's response, we know that there was something that was very visually intimidating about this angel. 
And so verse 12 says, when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. So this was an overwhelming, obviously angelic being that struck this paralyzing fear in Zechariah's heart. And this angel responds to him, telling him not to be afraid, which is the same thing every angel tells every terrified human in scripture. But what I think is very unique here is the reason the angel tells him not to be afraid. Notice again, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. So that begs a question, what was Zechariah's prayer? Well, based on what the angel says, Zechariah receives an answer to a twofold prayer. He would finally receive a son and a savior. See, we're so far removed from this time in this culture that if we're not careful, the significance of the actual words that the angel uses are lost on us. And it would not have been lost on Zechariah. Because to his great shock and surprise, Zechariah would have known that this angel is using the exact same language as the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah promised that another prophet would come in the spirit and the power of the great prophet Elijah, and he would prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. So as this angel speaks to him, what Zechariah is hearing is, oh my gosh, not only is it insane that me and my elderly wife are about to have a baby, finally, but the Messiah is finally coming. And so here's something I can't help but think about in this. What if at the very moment that Zechariah cowered in fear, God canceled his commitment to using him? What, what if God was like, geez, I, I really expected more from a priest. I thought this priest would have been a little bit more brave. This guy's a coward, so let's find someone else. But none of that happens. Despite his fear, God, through this angel, comforts him and still chooses to use him. Which teaches us that fear cannot forfeit our participation in God's plan. God is greater than our fear. And so maybe you fear that some failure in your life is too great. Or that maybe your skills, for some reason, are just too small. Maybe you fear that God isn't big enough or strong enough to use someone like you. And if you feel any of that, look at what God does with Zechariah. He is not impressive. And still we see that God delivers every promise he declares, which means our fears can't hinder his plan. But here's what I think is interesting. Instead of excitement at this incredible news, and despite the supernatural nature of this messenger, I love the fact that Zechariah is skeptical. It's like, I'm not sure about all this. Which surfaces our third obstacle, which is this. Our doubts can't hinder God's plan. Our doubts can't hinder God's plan. Let's finish up. Look at verse 18. Notice how Zechariah responds. He says, how can I know this? Which is an amazing question. Because if you're Gabriel, the angel that we're going to meet in a second, how, how is he not like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> I'm not sure how to provide you with uh, a little bit more supernatural evidence that this is going to go down. But Zechariah says, how can I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Poor Elizabeth. That's the only thing we ever hear about her. <laughs> chick's just old. So the angel answers him and says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. 
and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he had stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. So Zechariah's response to this loving gift of God is 100% void of faith and trust. And, 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 and all of that is despite the fact that an angel of all beings delivers this message. And this is not like some, like this is a varsity angel. This is not like a JV angel that God called off the bench because everybody else was busy. Gabriel, if you don't know, is one of only two angels in the entire Bible that is recorded by name. And the reason that that should encourage us is that despite Zachariah's doubt, God's going to use him anyways. He's going to deliver what he has declared. Now, unfortunately for Zechariah, his doubt did have a consequence. He had to live the next nine months unable to speak, but that didn't hinder God's plan. And it ended up being deeply formative to the faith of Zechariah. And God used this season of silence to form trust in him. And I think all of this is very good news because like Zechariah, we're all prone to doubt the character and the capability of God. We all experience doubt that God is good when life is difficult. We all experience doubt that God's in control when tragedy strikes, when something doesn't go according to our plan. We all experience doubt that God is good is enough for us and that he is with us. And the important lesson that we learn from Zachariah's experience is this. When all we see, when all we see are the problems in front of us, we are blinded to the possibility of what God could do. It is understandable and it is good for us to acknowledge our limitations, to acknowledge our fear, to acknowledge our doubts, but it's a mistake to make them the whole story. Our limitations, our fears, and our doubts are incapable of hindering the plan of God for this world. He is going to deliver every promise he declares. Now, what's at stake is our experience of him in the midst of it all. And so what this really comes down to for each of us is trust. And one of the most important decisions that we make moment by moment every single day is whether or not we will trust God. Will we trust that he's going to see his plan for this world through to completion? Will we trust that God is going to complete everything that he has started in each of us. And before it's a feeling, trust is a decision. Trust is the decision to move through life as if all that God says is actually true. Trust is messy, it's a process, it's hard, but it is also something that we can do. And so I wanna just close giving you three simple suggestions to help us, to help you move toward trust day by day. 
none of these are going to like blow your hair back, okay? They're pretty simple decisions that you would expect to hear from a pastor. The first one is to embrace scripture. To embrace scripture. Often when we're struggling with doubt, when we're struggling with trust, we move away from God's word when we should move to it. So if you're struggling with trust, I want to invite you to move into and embrace the Psalms as a daily part of your life. One Psalm a day. Sit with it, take your time with it, don't rush through it, and allow God to speak into the totality of your human experience through those words. So embrace scripture. Secondly is to engage God. Talk to him about it. Again, in seasons of doubt and seasons of distrust, we move away from him rather than toward him. And I know that's hard. There have been many days in my life when I'm struggling with doubt or I'm struggling with trust, and the last thing I want to do is to talk to the person that I am struggling to trust. But that relationship being cultivated through communication with him, through listening to him, is how that trust is established. And then finally is enter community. Enter community. So real simply, if you are not in a community group, then sign up for one as we get ready to start those again in January so that you have a community of people around you who will listen to you, pray with you, be with you, support you, because we are incapable of flourishing in life alone. So none of these is a silver bullet, but these three choices help us move toward ever-deepening trust in God who delivers every promise he declares. And so let's close by praying and asking the Spirit to help us choose trust. Can we do that together? Can you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you are worthy of trust. Whether or not we feel that, whether or not we always make that decision, you are objectively worthy of being trusted because you have never failed us. You have never allowed or done anything in our lives that will not one day be for our good. And Jesus, you gave everything so that we might know you. Lord, as we get ready in just a moment to take communion and we remember your sacrifice, I pray that today it would be one investment into our hearts that we would see and hear you saying, this is why you should trust me. I laid everything down for you. You were willing, Lord, to lose everything for us. And for that reason alone, you are worthy of our trust. Lord, you know the source of any of our doubt. You know the cause of all of our fears. You know the context of any of our limitations, and you are in it all. And you are bigger and greater and better than all of it. And you will deliver every promise that you have declared to us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe that that's true and that we would experience your good presence with us in this season. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.